We're doing a story this week that is in all four of the Gospels. And it is fascinating to me. Uh, it is the story of a, of a servant of the high priest whose name is Malchus. M-A-L-C-H-U-S. And it's incredible that the resurrection of Lazarus only shows up in the Gospel of John. But a non-believing high priest of Caiaphas makes it in all four of the Gospels. Now, John, we, uh, um, we're going to get to experiencing God eventually. That's I promise all right. you. You're good. I promise you. So Caiaphas was the high priest, and his servant was Malchus. We only know that from the Gospel of John. We only know that he was healed from the Gospel of Luke. We know that Peter cut his ear off only from the Gospel of John. And, and it, it brings us to uh, one of those uh, uh, situations that's kind of like, does Scripture contradict itself? Does does the absence of detail in one account uh, cause us consternation in any way? I hope by now you know the answer is no, that if, if one news agency covers an event and another news agency covers an event, even if they're compatible in their political persuasion, there are times you read their accounts and wonder if you even were reading about the same event. And so when four gospel writers, particularly John, who wrote much later than the other ones, remember the, the three, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Mark was probably first. Some people say Matthew was first. Uh, it's, it's obvious in reading the gospel of John that he had access to Matthew's gospel, to Mark's gospel. But uh, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't cause us any anxiety when they offer us uh, different details. Um, you also may remember that I've told you before that the Gospel of John is a little different than the other three. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels because they are a synopsis. They are more concerned with what happened than why it happened. And John is more concerned with why it happened than what happened and what order it happened and who was involved when it happened and where it happened and where in the timeline it happened. He wants us to know the theology behind it. Why? What is it we learn about God through this event? Yeah, Steve? Just a quick question. As fascinating as the harmony of the Gospels are and all the comparisons, which you've been mentioning, why is it that I've never, this church anywhere, ever seen a Bible study? No one ever really talks about it or studies it. Any idea? It would seem like a natural thing. Studies. The harmony of the Gospels and the comparison of what is right. covered in God's and right. Brian. It's just well, fascinating. Love you so much. Yeah. There's a harmony of Samuel. Did you all hear Steve's question? He said that, well, why is it we don't study the harmony of the Gospels? Well, in here we do. Uh, that's that's kind of where we're going tonight is that um, the run up to the the Gethsemane incident 
uh, is a little different across the Gospels. And it has a little bit to do, uh, and Steve, it's a great question because, again, you ask, who was Matthew? He was a Jew. Who was Luke? He was a Gentile physician. Who was Mark? He was probably the youngest of the three. Uh, as a matter of fact, Mark left us a breadcrumb in his description of the Garden of Gethsemane that makes us wonder if he just included a little detail that was just for him. Um, at the end of the story in Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 14, after Jesus was arrested, the scripture gives us this crazy little detail that there was a young man at the edge of the crowd who started to flee, and they grabbed his tunic, and he ran away naked. And you're wondering, why in the world is that detail in there, unless it's him? <laughs> And and that's only in Mark's gospel. So it's uh, it's as good a solution as any that he was the young man. But the harmony of the gospel is that John didn't care about that detail. And, and Luke probably didn't know about that detail. We, we remember Luke wasn't there. Uh, it's, it's a little bit of a debate as to whether the John that wrote the gospel is the John who was there. I think he was, but not everybody believes that. Not everybody believes that John the apostle and John the evangelist are the same person. I do. Um, Matthew was not there as far as we know, because the scripture tells us that the three who went to pray with him in the Garden of Gethsemane were uh, Peter, James, and John. Well, so John, that explains why he would include it. Peter pretty much dictated to Luke. So, so we, we, we kind of have a, a sense that Luke would have been on task. But then we're reminded that John doesn't include details that he doesn't think are relevant to the theology of it. So John doesn't even include the, the agonizing prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed so fervently that he sweat drops of blood, and he said, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. That's not even in, John. So let me go back a little ways, and, and if if I lose anybody, just wave, and, and I'll, uh, then I'll start over. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and I'm going to take Luke as our example so that you can uh, just stay uh, in Luke uh, uh, for the most part. Um, in those three, there is a, a what's called a discourse or a speech. It's Jesus's final teachings to the disciples. And it's a body of teaching that pretty much happens at the Lord's Supper. Okay, so in, in the Synoptic Gospels, um, you, you see at the Lord's Supper uh, that there's uh, a whole lot of, of, of talking that goes on. Um, and, and then just right before that, the, as he is heading into the Lord's Supper, there's a lot of, of discussion. Uh, Peter's Denials are predicted at the Lord's Supper. Um, he, he, he tells them that they're 
that the time is approaching. That all happens at the Lord's Supper. So then in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and then at the end of the Lord's Supper, um, verse 39 in Luke 22, as he came out and went, as was his custom to the Mount of Olives. So the Lord's Supper is over. He goes to the Mount of Olives. If you look over in Matthew chapter 26, um, Scripture tells us that uh, there's discussion at the Last Supper. Um, then verse 30, chapter 26, they sang a hymn. They went to the Mount of Olives. And then in verse 36, they went with them to a place called Gethsemane, which means olive grove. Now, Gethsemane was on the Mount of Olives. It's, it's at the very base of the Mount of Olives. Uh, when we go there, it's right next to the Church of All Nations. And it's a delightful little grove. It's, it's relatively like it was then. There's a, actually an olive tree in the Garden of Gethsemane that's probably close to 2,000 years old. So um, in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke accounts, the discourse or the teaching takes place at the Last Supper. In John's account, there's a little bit of confusion. Bill, I'm going to get you to help me out. Look up John 18, verse, uh, I'm sorry, John 14, verse 30. John 14, verse 30. All right, Bill, read that out loud, and then read 31 to follow I will speak with you. Can I you guys hear him? I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold on me, but the world must learn that I love the Father, and I do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Keep going. Come now, let us leave. Come now, let us leave. So, Lord's Supper is over. We've had dessert. Let us leave. Then he starts talking again. And for three more chapters, he's talking. Look at John 18, verse 1. Bill, you did a great job. Read that one, too. When he had finished praying, Jesus left his with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was an olive grove, and he and his disciples went into it. Well, did he leave in John 14, or did he leave in John 18? Is it one of those deals where your guests get up from the table and say, well, we better be getting home, and then 30 minutes later, they head out the door? Or is it one of those deals where we need to understand what's happening here now, there are lots of opinions. I'm only going to give you one, mine, but there are lots of opinions to this. I believe they left the Lord's Supper, the upper room, 
I believe in John 14, 31, they left the upper room and they began to walk towards the east gate, the eastern gate, which then was still open. That was the gate that was immediately across the valley from uh, across the Kidron Valley. It's a, a little narrow valley that water only runs through during flooding season. And the Garden of Gethsemane would be just on the other side of it. They would have passed the temple on the way. And it's quite possible that he stopped at the temple to pray. Because if you look at John 14, John 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. One of the most prominent decorations in the ancient, in Solomon's temple, or Herod's temple at that time. One of the most prominent decorations was a golden vine, an olive vine, and wealthy people could add to that vine clusters of grapes as sort of their, they would get a metal worker to add something. It's sort of like putting your name on a on a pew or something, you could, uh, they, so, so the, there was a prominent feature there and it's quite possible in my mind that they left the upper room in John 14, verse 31, began to walk. They paused at the temple to pray where, where it's better to pray. He looked at the decoration or, or was reminded of a decoration that was inside that they all knew they'd all been in the temple. And he said, I'm the vine, you are the branches. And he gave the whole illustration of abide in me from John 15. And then he continued that in John 16 uh, with some additional teachings. I've said all of these things to keep you from falling away. And then in John 17, he begins to pray. The high priestly prayer of John 17, where he prays for himself and not a not a petition prayer where he says god give me this and give me this and give me this but god may you be glorified in all this son same prayer he prayed with lazarus may may you be glorified in the things that are unfolding now a lot of people call john 14 15 16 17 they call it the upper room discourse or more likely, they call it the final discourse, because it's very plainly teaching that is at the end of his life. Well, Steve, the harmony of the Gospels, the final discourse for Matthew, Mark, and Luke took place before the Lord's Supper and into the Lord's Supper, and then almost immediately after the Lord's Supper, the synoptics have him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Well, John's interested in the theology. He's wanting us to know what God is doing and how God will be glorified and how all this will unfold for God's glory. So he says they left the upper room. They went to the temple, which would be destroyed. And which Jesus said, this temple will be destroyed in three days. It'll rise again. So they may have thought about something he said earlier about the resurrection, but I believe that he stopped at the temple to pray, and he was just caught up in the uh, that that the that we we tend to uh, maybe downplay the sacredness of the temple for the Jews, but I don't know if you've ever been in church here. I have, 
where I've just felt the spirit so strongly that I had a bond to, to this place, my church, because God showed up. God did a work here. When I saw 90 students on Sunday morning from the weekend, the retreat weekend, when I read of 922 girls and women who were here and 13 of them received Christ as Savior, I, I get this chill bump thing. And, and every Jew that went to the temple would get chill bumps. When we go to Jerusalem, when we go to Israel in May, when we leave, all of our hosts will say this phrase, next year in Jerusalem, because there's this sense of coming home, and for them, coming home was to the temple. So it would make perfect sense that Jesus, a rabbi, would stop there to pray. I'm getting ahead of myself because, well, I'm getting behind. Uh, so now they head for the Garden of Gethsemane. And in the synoptics, you have the prayer. Okay, you have an agonizing in prayer. He says to the disciples, can you stay awake for just an hour? They can't. So they're sleeping. He's praying. He's praying that the Father would be glorified. Well, John doesn't include this prayer, but John just included the priestly prayer from John 17. So it's not incongruous to me at all that this prayer is leading up to his arrest and all of the writers get on the same page and kind of converge with the story of Malchus. So he's in the garden in John 18. It says, when he had spoken these words, he went with his disciples across the brook Kidron or the Kidron Valley. Um, now G Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. Well, in Luke's gospel, it tells us he went there all the time, as was his custom. And so Judas didn't have any problem figuring out where he was. That's where he went to pray. That's where he took the disciples for a little quiet time. One person, George Hill, like this, had an interesting take on this in that it was the beginning of the Sabbath. And so Bethany, where he would normally spend the night, was more than two miles away. And two miles was the extent of what you could walk on the Sabbath and have it honor the Sabbath. So it's quite possible he planned to spend the night in the Garden of Gethsemane, so he wouldn't violate the Sabbath. Now, that's not substantiated. We can't know the motives, but how interesting that he would be honoring to the law when he knows that on Friday morning or Thursday morning, depending on who you read, but don't let me blow your mind, that on that day, he would fulfill the law. Remember what he said in John 3, 17? I came not into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I didn't come to condemn the law, but to fulfill it. And on the cross, he did. So he's in the garden. He's praying. Judas procured a band of soldiers. Now, in your mind's eye, how many soldiers is that? 
Depends on who you read. Well, in the pictures eh, that you see in museums, there are only four or five, aren't there? Who are they? Romans? Jews? Temple Garden? Probably. Gary said Temple Garden. John's language almost makes it seem like they're Romans. I don't think they were. I don't think the Romans cared that much. Uh, and and if if the language John used of a Roman battalion with a captain, there would have been between two hundred and six hundred of them. <laughs> I personally think it was the Temple Guard, maybe a Roman soldier or two, just to kind of watch things. We think they were the temple guard because Malchus was there. He was the servant of the high priest. So the high priest at, who, who commanded the temple guard, probably based in the Antonio Fortress where Jesus was taken uh, when they arrested him after Caiaphas's house. Probably the temple guard, probably a contingent of soldiers, and by then a mob. Oh. All of the all of the accounts seem to at least imply that it wasn't just two or three people. Oh, okay. That that they he said, "Why do you come in with sticks and staves?" So it wasn't all soldiers. It, it you you know picture a posse in the old west where they got shovels and pitchforks and hoes and guns and whatever they got laying around let's go get them and it's i i kind of picture that it probably gathered a crowd uh on the way as well so uh in john it says a band of soldiers um and then it says then jesus knowing all that would happen to him came forward and said who do you see Oddly enough, they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth, like he needed an identifier. Jesus of Nazareth, very rare phrase in John. But it's 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 kind of like at a wedding. I'll uh, when I pronounce a man and wife, I I say the groom's full name, and half the audience goes, "I didn't know that was his name." <laughs> so it's like it's almost like they're trying to pronounce charges that there's a, a formal arrest. So Jesus said, don't miss this. What did he say? I am he. Let me say it a little differently. I am oh. he. And he used the phrase for Yahweh. Now, what would Jewish soldiers do wow. when they, they heard like that, that name? Worship, fall down. What would Roman soldiers do? They wouldn't care. Nothing. That's why I think they're not Romans. I mean, also, it doesn't seem like the the trial that's about to take place, the trial, was a Jewish trial. They hadn't even proven a case to right, Roman. right. There, this is this is a Jewish arrest, but the the Jews know they cannot act outside Roman authority, so. I have no doubt that they did not do this, especially if the mob joined them. They did not do it without Roman sanction. 
because they were they were ongoing that we we read all the time that they were terrified that the Romans were going to take away their toys. And that's why Herod is the Jewish king, but he's appointed by the Roman authorities. Pilate is the Roman governor. And, and in a little while, we'll see Jesus being batted back and forth between Pilate and Herod. But but I, I agree with you. I think it was, was going to be a Jewish um, kind of a kangaroo court. They It was illegal for them to have a trial at night. And so it was Jewish. I think it was Jewish soldiers as a temple guard. What does my Bible in verse 3 say? Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the tree and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And then my footnote is a group of 300 to 600 Roman soldiers. So you're saying that. I think that that's, a, that, I, I think that that's one of those translation okay. problems. Okay. I think so. I just can't imagine them caring enough to send 600 soldiers in the middle of the night to okay. a Jewish rally. I just that. Uh, they would have to be convinced. And that's the language he used. That's been the confusion. That's why when people draw paintings, they draw the armored Roman soldiers. And and there may have been a few of them. Uh, I Maybe a Roman guard, which is six. Um, you know, they placed a Roman guard over the tomb, and that would have been six soldiers. Yeah. But, but a Roman cohort would have been between 200 and 600. And that seems implausible to me. Now, I, I'm, I don't want to make the scripture say what it doesn't say. Doesn't but, matter to me. Really. Um, no, it, <laughs> it doesn't. And they're they're in Luke's uh, version. If you look at verses forty three and forty four, they're not even in all the translations because they weren't in the earliest manuscripts. And and we're, we find that throughout. And here's where I love John. He says the same thing you said. He said, who cares? Let God be glorified. Let us let us celebrate the risen king. And so when Jesus said, I am he, he equated himself with God. And the, the very mention of Yahweh's name would cause the, the soldiers to worship. They drew back. They fell on the ground. He said again, who do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. So what is he doing? We'll talk about that Sunday a little bit. He's he's pleading for the lives of his disciples. Don't arrest them. They haven't done anything. You're looking for me. And all the disciples fled. Okay? And then in Mark's version, we have that crazy little caveat. <laughs> and Malchus gets his ear cut off. I'm coming to that. Okay. Peter hasn't run away yet. Peter is probably still smarting from Luke 22 when Jesus said, Simon, Simon, Satan has come to me. He's demanded to sift you like wheat. Yet I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail you, that when you return, you can strengthen the others. Luke 22, 31. And Simon says, I am with you even to the death. And Jesus said, 
The rooster won't crow three times in the morning before you've denied me. Three times. And so it could be that, that Peter was trying to prove his bravado. We don't know. But the scripture tells us, then Simon Peter, uh, oh, he says in verse 9, this was spoken to fulfill the word of these you gave me. I've lost not one. There's prophecy behind letting the disciples go. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it, struck the high priest servant, and cut off his right ear. Most people observe that the word used for sword here was a type of sword that was a stabbing sword, not a slicing sword. So Peter probably meant to whack him in the head and just ended up cutting his ear off. But only Luke tells us that he put the ear back. Now, why does that not surprise us with Luke? The doctor. He's a doctor. So I'm trying to get, and, and Sunday is when we're going to talk about Malchus. Um, it happened very quickly. And one writer said, can you imagine he got home that night and his hair was matted with blood and blood was on his coat and he was a mess but when he pulled his hair back, his ear was perfectly whole. And so we, we don't have any reason to believe it didn't bleed. He cut his ear off. But Jesus healed him. A lot of writers, and I, this I find very plausible, believe that when Jesus healed him, it probably saved Peter's life. Because if Peter attacked the servant of the high priest, and a prominent servant. He's named. The, the word bondservant usually means slave. But the fact that he is named, he is known. Uh, John would have known who he was. He wrote his name. The people would have wrote, known who he was. He would have been out front because that's where Jesus was. So his ear was available. Uh, so he was known. He was not a man of of no standing. And if Peter had attacked him and wounded him and Jesus didn't heal him, they may have seized Peter on the spot. But they didn't. What, the, what scripture? Luke 22 is where it says he was healed. Luke 22. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup? John didn't give us the prayer of agony, but what did Jesus say in that prayer? Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass. Nonetheless, not my will, but thine be done. So he comes full circle as he's being arrested, and he says, shall I not drink the cup? John, I'm about to give it to you, but I'm going to ask one more question. Was Malchus saved? There is no way to know. That's one of the weirdest things about this whole story. It's mentioned in all four of the Gospels and never again. 
You never see his name again. There's only one place in the in the church fathers in the histories. Now, uh, the the historian Josephus mentioned him, but uh, only in this context, or mentioned uh, somebody named Malchus. We we don't know if it's the same. One of the church fathers, Jerome, cited a extra biblical, probably a fantasy book that made something up about Malchus becoming a believer, but nothing about it makes us think he did. Everything about the story, he he went on about his duties. He helped arrest Jesus. He delivered him to Caiaphas, the high priest. You would think that if he became a Christian, John was written in, I don't know, somewhere between 75 and 90. So four decades later, you would think that if this guy had showed up anywhere, John would have put a footnote about it. Hmm. He made sure we knew it was Mary who anointed Jesus' feet with her hair. Now, one thing I, I noticed. Can you earlier, guys hear Gary okay? One thing I noticed earlier was that uh, John is the only one who mentions him by name. Right. And, and so, he's the only one that mentions Peter by name. Yeah. And, so, but, and you mentioned that uh, that John... If there was a, a more to the story, then John might have mentioned Malchus in a footnote. Maybe this was a known person. Maybe this was a known person that he added his name because the people in the church would have been familiar with him. Yeah. Well, that's and it's just it's just theoretical. I mean, that, that's true. Yeah. If Simon Peter didn't cut off his ear and. Would have in all of the other gospels it said, and one of them cut off his ear, didn't mention Simon Peter. Oh, I know, but and some people think because they were written much earlier. So if Matthew, Mark, Luke were written in the 50s, Peter was still alive. And some think that if they'd have mentioned his name, it might have endangered him in some way. Hmm. If he'd have been associated with violence, this is the only miracle that took place in the face of violence. Mm. It, it's the only one of you. And it's the last, one, one writer titled his sermon, The Last Man Jesus Healed Before the Cross, because this is the last healing that Jesus did. But Alan, you're making me think I've always thought that everybody Jesus healed was saved, but that's not necessarily true. We don't know if any of the people that he healed were saved. In I a mean, few weeks, I'm gonna talk more. about Barabbas. Yeah who was a recipient of Jesus's mercy. Jesus died in his place. He was the first that Jesus died in his place, but we have no evidence that he ever repented. Isn't that interesting? I never thought about it before. Well, I, if I did, I don't remember. We can't ever forget that he washed Jesus, Judas's feet. And, and we see an incredible, uh, and that's where I'm going to go eventually Sunday, is that we see mercy that's offered, just that, that grace, healing is offered. And while it's compelling, I, I can't imagine that this guy ever rolled over at night onto his pillow and landed on that ear and didn't think, that guy, that guy. I, I don't imagine there was a day in his life he didn't think about Jesus. But there's nothing in any writing that makes us believe 
that he came to know Christ as Savior. We'd love to tell that story, but it's so much more honest to say, we have people today who see miracles, who experience grace, who, 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 who understand the presence of God and yet still walk away. And to me, that's the story of Malchus. That's what we're going to look at Sunday, is that he received the healing of Christ. But as far as we know, he walked away. Well, what about the one, the one of the prisoners, one of the guys that was on the cross next to Jesus yeah. on the day that he's crucified? And he was a believer. He says, surely this man... That was a Roman soldier. And oddly enough, Skip, yeah, he's talking about the thief on the, the cross. thief on the cross said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. The other thief continued to mock. The Roman soldier, who is my subject for Easter Sunday, said, surely this was the Son of God. All right. So uh, we've done a little bit of a deep dive. Emily. Yeah, one of the things I love about this is that the mercy shown and it it's it's once again God's unconditional love and it doesn't matter if they were you know exactly. unpleasant people or or does it matter if he receives it or not. You know, I'm so broken when I give something to someone if they don't say thank you, I want to say give it back. <laughs> You know, I, I don't, I don't, I don't do well in the face of ingratitude. But Jesus offered in the midst of his trial. He he extends mercy to an enemy who's trying to arrest him. And there was nothing that tells us that the enemy received it, and yet he he still healed him. And uh, I think we're going to have to look in the mirror on Sunday. And go, how many times has God extended his grace to us? And yet we just accept the healing and walk away. So going to be fun on Sunday. Emily, I told you there was going to be a doozy tonight. So we're uh, we're looking forward to it. John, you got 13 minutes. All right. <laughs> <laughs> no, Caiaphas wasn't there. I think I think why the, the reason Caiaphas sent Malchus was as a spy. I he didn't need Malchus to arrest him, but I don't think Caiaphas wanted to be left out of any of the details. I, I think he wanted to know everything. But if he showed up, it would lend a different weight to it. It would it would make it feel like it was an organized uh, mob rather than. Caiaphas just being able to say when they showed up at his house, what? What is this? What is this guy? What are you saying he did? But Caiaphas instituted the whole thing. 